Well, hello, and welcome to our new podcast that we don't really quite have a name for yet. My name is Steve Yalisov. I'm a professor in the material science and engineering department. I've been here since 1989. Uh, before that, I got a, my PhD in material science at University of Pennsylvania. I did a postdoc at Bell Labs, and now I'm here. Um, I've been teaching since 1989, but I've ever since 2012, all I've done is team-based, project-based learning, and boy, do I love it, and that's what I'm going to be talking about. And my co-host... Hey, everyone. I'm Tim Chambers. I am a lecturer in MSE here at the University of Michigan. I uh, started here in 2014, but before that, I did my PhD in physics, and I did a postdoc with NASA as well. I primarily teach lab classes, but I also teach introduction to engineering, and this spans a, a wide range of educational formats from labs to projects to interactive lectures, pretty much the whole suite of experiences. So today we're going to start to talk about what should we name our podcast. So the really boring name is a materials education podcast, because after all, that's really what this podcast is about sharing best practices with our colleagues in the materials community. Uh, both Tim and I have been very active on um, our society's education committees. Uh, we've been involved with the North American Materials Education Symposium. Um, and we're actually hosting that event uh, this coming summer. And Tim and I are both on the uh, organizing committee for that. So, Considering that we want to talk about education and materials education in particular, uh, we're struggling with finding a name that's not quite so boring. So one of the first things I thought of was, what about tetrahedral teaching? And yeah, it's kind of geeky, but um, I think everyone in our field understands the power of the tetrahedron. But what do you think, Tim? Well, I think there's a really interesting analogy between the materials tetrahedron and what we do in teaching. We're processing our students. We're trying to change their properties. We want them to ultimately perform and succeed out in the world. So I think there's some good validity to that model. And I guess our next idea was uh, from Tim. He suggested, what about crystallizing learning? And that's the one we've decided to go with temporarily. And so, Tim, why don't you talk about why you think that's a good name? Sure. So we want our, our students to have a coherent mental structure for their knowledge. We want them to bring together different ideas, different concepts, different ways of thinking into a structured whole. So I think there's uh, a nice comparison with crystalline structure there. But Steve brought up a great objection, which is that Crystals are also rigid, <laughs> and we don't want our students to be rigid. We want them to be flexible. So where do you go with that? So that's why the next idea I had was uh, something that's really geeky for material scientists. I thought, what about undercooled? Because the whole concept is that our students come in kind of being amorphous, and when we quench them rapidly, they'll go to a very unstable state where they can take off in many different directions depending on the kinetics. So I kind of liked undercooled because it kind of speaks to how I want 
our students to end up after our education. But maybe that's a little bit too chaotic. Well, I don't know. If I think about a cooling curve for a cast metal, for example, and it starts liquid and goes through that rapid cooling phase, and you see that little bump up in the temperature as it goes through this exothermic solidification process, that reminds me of what happens in class when students are confronting something new and they start to become quiet and withdrawn and you can tell they're struggling with it and then someone has that aha moment and the energy comes back and you say, oh, something really just happened there. They went through a phase transformation. So maybe there's something to that one. Okay. And of course, the other one that we could use that's sort of similar is transformational teaching. I'm a little worried about that because it means too many things to too many people and uh, we might be providing the wrong answer. So I, I think I like undercooled a little bit better because most people outside of the materials community will have no idea what we're talking about. But that's just fine because we're making this we're making this podcast for the materials community first. And maybe we'll draw some people in if they're wondering what does undercooled mean? It is a good tease. You know, the other way to uh, to beat the algorithm is, of course, to have forging in the title because everyone still loves forged in fire. And that's what we do as well. We're forging engineers in these classes. That's right. That would be a that would be a good, um, good answer as well. And uh, to make it a little less uh, metal centric, we could even call it molding material scientist. So uh, those are sort of the things, and I guess along that line, Tim came up with something for the ceramists. Well, alliteration is the cornerstone of any good title, and what what starts with an S that might be of interest to a material scientist? Oh, of course, sintering. And these students come in as this powder. You know, they're just completely unconnected to each other, but we want them to connect to each other. We want them to form bonds with the other, with their peers in our classes and to have meaningful interactions with each other. So anyway, those are the ones we've thought of so far and we're, we're grappling with them. Of course, all of these will have a colon with a materials education podcast also in the title to make sure people can find us if they search. So I think Tim and I are going to continue to talk about this and we might just have to, you know, put them in a box and pull a piece of paper out. But we will have a name by the end of the week. Of course, you won't hear this until after we have figured out the name. <laughs> That's because right. Because Apple makes us wait two hours, before, two weeks before they'll let us post our uh, podcast uh, for all of the services. So we're working on that. And we're also working on uh, building our own website that we'll put in the show notes because uh, we'd really like to have um, people who are listening to this uh, call in and give us questions. To do that, we're going to have a little utility on the website where you can push a button and you'll have 90 seconds to ask us a question. And we'd love to have a section of this podcast where we answer your questions. So the other thing we thought would be fun to do, uh, especially when we don't have enough to talk about, which is probably not going to happen because Tim and I kind of talk a lot. But um, <laughs> Occupational hazard. Yes. I, my wife once told me the only, the only attribute, the only quality a professor needs is the ability to speak to a doorknob for two hours without stopping. And she, she kind of has a point. So we thought we might 
bring something in of ourselves and a segment called From the Classroom, where we will uh, ask each other, what recent challenge did you face in your teaching this week and how did you deal with it? So I'll ask Tim that right now. Let me have it. Go ahead. Okay. Well, a situation that I'm dealing with this week is that I have a student who is having some financial struggles personally, and it's really impacting the student's ability to participate in the class in terms of access to technology, in terms of having time available outside of work to, uh, to spend with teammates, to work on group projects together. And this is not an easy problem. It's not one with a simple solution. But one thing that I've found is that a lot of college students don't realize how many resources are available to them at their institutions. We have, not just here at Michigan, but most schools will have different student support services, different programs that are there to support students' mental health, financial needs, as well as academic counseling, career counseling, all of this. And so I one really important part of the job, I feel, is to know what those resources are and to connect students to them. That's great. And so how exactly is the student being impacted? He can't afford, I mean, you're, you don't ask them to buy stuff for the lab, do you? No, definitely not. But quality of life, it's always easier if you have your own computer, you know, if you have your own software. And these are things that uh, if you're a, a person with some financial means to just acquire supplies and to have resources you might not think about, but for some students, it's quite a struggle to say, I need to get to a laptop or I have to go find a computer that's free and available and also works. And so in this case, that was one of the solutions that we worked through together was me partly sitting down with the student and spending some time showing here are free resources, here's online software that can just run in a browser that will do a lot of what you need in this course, but also saying, by the way, there's this IT support staff in the college that partly is responsible for helping students like you who don't have access to, good access to the technology that they need. That's fantastic. So do they actually have places where they can borrow a laptop? Yes, that's a new program that we, the college here has just started but I would say to any listeners, even just within your own department, there's surely a, a computer or two floating around that simply isn't getting used that a student might have a really valuable utility for. Right. I imagine that a uh, Chromebook would be a very inexpensive thing for a, for a department to purchase just for those students. <clears throat> I Definitely. know I've, years ago, I remember I, I had that problem in one of my classes and um, I was able to get a Chromebook for that student, no problem. And it really worked out. That's awesome. So anyway, I'll talk about one of my challenges. So, yeah, what's uh, happening on your side? So I'm teaching a very large uh, team-based class this term. I have 24 teams and 140 students. And um, it's it's been a little challenging uh, getting it up and running. But now it's running very, very smoothly. And it's nice because... Uh, Instead of a large lecture, um, I've turned that large lecture into small six-person classrooms where six people on a team interact. I have a lot of uh, instructional help to help them, but it's still a team-based course. And so I have team-based activities. And so one of those activities is a readiness assurance activity, which is sort of like a quiz, but it's an online quiz. They all do it um, in class 
by themselves without the, you know, the only thing on the internet is to use it to take the exam and maybe use a calculator. And, uh, but they can't look at their book. They can't look at their notes. They can't talk to each other and we're not going to give them help. And they take that quiz. It takes like 20 to 30 minutes. And then when that's over, we immediately give them the exact same quiz, but now it's the team round. And so the entire team can now talk to each other. They see the answers that they submitted, but we didn't tell them if they were right or wrong. So they compare their answers. They have open book, open notes, open internet, and we even have instructional aides and graduate student instructors walking around to give them hints and help them actually learn what they just did. And then I wait one side of that 85% for the team round, 15% for the individual round. So I blunt the summative effect and that's the grade they get, the weighted average of those things. And so all that sounds great until a student gets migraines and their vision goes out and they have to go to the hospital, which actually happened. And when you have 140 people, statistically, you're going to have more people who have these kinds of problems or, you know, they, they're getting sick. I don't want them coming to class and getting the rest of us sick. Of course, I'll give them an excuse. But when they miss an activity like that because they just can't do it for real legitimate reasons, how do I deal with that? Yeah, so, you know, that's something I think is worth reminding anyone who might be teaching a large class for the first time or for the first time in a while. The law of large numbers is very real. Improbable things will happen to you regularly when you just have that many people that you're working with. Yeah, I remember teach. I had to teach a class that was uh, 600 people. And we didn't have a classroom big enough to teach that. This was intro to materials way back in like 1998, I think this happened. And so I had to teach the class three different times during the day. Oh, no. It was horrible. Um, I mean, my, my jokes are pretty bad to begin with. But the <laughs> third time I <laughs> told them in the day, bad. oh, my goodness. But when you had, when I had that, I had a student who couldn't come to class because he had to go to his parole hearing. <laughs> I, I have had, not heard that one before. Yeah, and I had students coming in who were who were late because they got in an accident on the way to class. And uh, yeah, the, the law of large numbers is a really real thing. But at any rate, how did I solve my problem? And I I, I wanted to make sure that they you know got credit for doing this activity. I wanted to make sure it was a learning activity. So I decided I would have a special, well, I teach with a uh, mastery grading approach, which I'll be talking about separately, but they have to get an A in every unit for the unit to count. And, um, but if they can't do the unit, what do I do? I could just reduce the number of units and recalculate it, but that's not really doing anything for anybody. So instead, I came up with an alternate activity that I only allow people with pre-approved, with really good reasons for not showing up. And I'm having them make a short two-minute whiteboard video about the topic that the RAA was on. And I want them to explain the, um, the objectives of this lesson, because they're all listed, to a high school student who's had some chemistry. Because that's not so easy to do, but it's something that if they could do, 
they would actually demonstrate to me that they mastered the material I was hoping they would demonstrate with my readiness assurance activity. Right. And that's what we actually want is for students to be able to show us, I learned this and here's how I can prove it to you. Exactly. And since we've already done a whiteboard video exercise in class previously, they know how to do it. And uh, it has to be handwritten, no cut and paste. They can't do a voiceover PowerPoint because PowerPoint is, you know, has problems. You just cut something and you paste it and it goes from wherever you cut it to wherever you paste it without ever going through your mind. And so when you have to draw something like a phase diagram, you worry about is this curvature up or curvature down? And it kind of goes back to, you know, when I was learning in the Stone Age and getting my degree, when we didn't have computers, we had to graph everything with India ink and French curves. And we thought about every single data point that we put on a plot. And that was actually useful. So anyway, that's that's what I did. And I, I think it's a good solution. So I don't know if that'll help anybody or not, but um, it was kind of fun coming up with that solution. Yeah, and it's a really good illustration of the most important point is for the students to learn. If they don't get to do the original thing that you hoped that you wanted them to do, there's something else that they can do that will still give them that learning opportunity. And grades, you can figure that out after the fact. I agree. So anyway, coming up, um, I'm planning on making a series about uh, the team-based, project-based uh, learning pedagogies that I've been using since 2012. And of course, I've learned a lot of these from Eric Mazur, who's a good friend. He also does optics. And I do my research is ultra fast optics with uh, interaction with materials. And so uh, hopefully we can get Eric to even come in and talk to us. He has a he has a busy schedule. But um, that's what I'm going to be doing. And there will be probably six, seven segments on that. And then I think Tim's planning a few as well. Yeah, definitely. So I guess I should casually flex that I spent about four years doing research on teaching and learning in lab courses, which means the lab is near and dear to my heart in many ways. And I thought it would be good to start off with how we've structured our lab sequence here and what the learning objectives are and how we guide th students through sequences of experiences that help them achieve those learning objectives in the lab. And I'm looking forward to hearing those. So anyway, I think that's enough for today. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you tune in to our next one. So thank you very much. Thank you.